Welcome back to Read Into Something. We're about to start another mysterious podcast episode brought to you by the Stone County Library. As always, I'm Alice, the branch manager. At my side is Winky, my mostly silent but intuitive co-host and the library mascot. Do the thing, Wink. Life is full of mysteries. Why is the sky blue? Is the government controlling us through 5G antennas? What happened to Bobby Dunbar? We may never know. Here are some other things we don't know about. Where do oop arts come from? Wait, you're not even sure what an oop art is? In just a moment, I'll explain, and we can talk about some historical artifacts of impossible origin. Out-of-place artifacts, or oop arts, are something I'd heard of prior to hours of mind-numbing alien shows on the History Channel. But I never really thought about them until I was deciding the lineup of Season 2 episodes for the podcast last summer. Specifically, oop arts are, per Wikipedia, artifacts of historical, archaeological, or paleontological... I guess I said that wrong... Interests found in unusual context, which challenges conventional historical chronology by its presence in that context. Whew, that sounded a lot simpler when I was copying and pasting. To dumb it down, let's say someone discovered what appears to be a 1999 Nokia cell phone encased in a petrified tree from prehistoric times. And I mean, there's no way some local teenager just wedged it in there. I'm talking it legit has been there since before this tree hardened into rock. It clearly says Nokia on it. It was obviously placed there by aliens or careless time travelers. Because Nokia phones may seem agent to today's youngsters, but they're 20th century technology. This is not a thing that actually happened, it's only an example. But there are cases in which modern objects, or objects to advance for the timeline, have appeared in historical sites. Let's take a look at some of them. The one I learned about in history class as a child was the Baghdad Battery. In 1938, William Koenig, a German archaeologist, discovered a clay jar with an asphalt top at a site in Iraq. Sticking out of the jar was an iron rod surrounded by copper. Through testing, it was discovered that this object could produce a volt of electricity. It dates back 2,000 years. A volt is enough to melt a metal like gold to put it on the surface of another object. But there's no written record of what the battery is really for. Others have pointed out that the copper wasn't exposed, making it difficult to function as a battery with no complete circuit. I can honestly say I don't know how batteries work, but okay, sure, it's not a battery. Others believe it may have been used to store sacred scrolls, but why did it have an iron rod sticking out? Who knows? Technically, if it's not a battery, then it's not an oopart. The trouble is, we don't know what it's for, or what its purpose was, or what they were even doing with it, so you can't say that it's out-of-place technology. I don't know. I, I decline to express an opinion on this one. Why is history like a fruitcake? Because it's full of dates. One of the fun things about oop-arts is that they're often found where they aren't supposed to be. Take, for example, the London Artifact, or the London Hammer. It's named for the place it was found, London, Texas. One afternoon in 1934 or 36, depending on who's telling the story, a couple were out for a stroll along the Red Creek when they saw a stone with something sticking out of it. Strangely, it was a piece of wood. Later, their son cracked open the rock. On further inspection, the wood was attached to a metal head of a hammer. It was clearly a hammer made sometime in the late 19th century. 
It's a known fact that the area had once been mined, so some forgetful miner had left behind his tool. Easy explanation. However, how did it get inside of a rock estimated to be 150,000 years old? The artifact was purchased by Carl Baugh, who wanted to use it to prove the young Earth theory. If you're unfamiliar, it's a bunch of people attempting to prove that the Earth was created between 6,000 to 10,000 years ago versus scientific data suggesting the Earth is way older than that. I'm not here to judge. Believe whatever you want. Bao said the rock around the hammer was created as an effect of the flood that happened around Noah's time. The hammer was probably left behind by the master shipbuilder himself. Bao's idea is that people in Noah's time were skilled in metalcraft and that the rock couldn't be as old as science stated. Seriously, this hammer got famous because of people arguing the age of it and the rock that it was stuck in. It's important to remember that it wasn't attached to any other rock like, say, riverbed or embedded in a cliff. Near water. Water that moves stuff like, say, rocks. I don't think Bao was trying to say that Noah built his ark in what would become Texas. More along the lines of he was aware that places do flood and I guess it drifted around the world and ended up in Texas? Studies have shown that the rock it's embedded in was a concretion, which I thought more or less all rocks are. The carbonate makeup of the rock suggests it was created when water evaporated around it. Again, pretty sure that's how rocks are made. However, it should be noted that making a rock takes time. But whatever this particular rock is made of, how it formed, it didn't do it in a hurry, but faster than some rocks. Like concrete. It takes approximately two weeks for concrete to dry. What I'm getting at is it might have taken 50 years from, say, a million? I didn't know when I was going to discuss Uparts that I'd suddenly have to become a scientist who figures out how long it takes for rocks to form. So we know for sure that some exposed materials that make up rocks can harden in a day. We know that others can take millions of years or better. So what do we make of the London artifact presented to this very day as an example of young Earth creationism? Aliens. Definitely aliens. If you didn't catch my sarcasm, please refer to Season 2, Episode 7, titled UFO No. By the way, a funny note about the hammer? It's on display in the Creation Evidence Museum in Glen Rose, Texas. If you'd like to purchase a replica of the hammer, you may do so by visiting the gift shop. On a similar note, in 1852 in Scotland, a piece of iron drill bit was found embedded in coal. They figured that someone had broken the bit. But get this, the outside of the coal showed no indications that anyone had attempted to mine it recently. The coal had formed around this iron bit at an earlier date. What date is anyone's guess? For the sake of science, I googled how long does it take coal to form? Well, the first answer that popped up says 12,000 to 60,000 years. That's a while. I'm not familiar with coal myself, so I can't say whether if something like it fell into it, it could compact around said object in fewer or even a dozen years. I wouldn't think so. Because what little I read suggests that coal is the result of a peat and something else that gets squished and lacking in oxygen and blah blah blah, I didn't read the rest. I can say fairly certainly that if it got wet, it wouldn't pack down and harden like mud. Feel free to contact me if I'm wrong. But there's something mysterious about how this broken piece of metal that looks like a drill bit wound up in ancient coal. I'm not even going to say it this time. I did find evidence all across the internet that a lot of weird items turn up in coal. I don't know what that means. In this day and age, it's rare that anyone except the older generations can accurately read a map. 
That's why we have smartphones. I know that I'm particularly bad at it. Hey, we only got lost twice when we went to Florida. How was I supposed to know it was a one-way street in Natchez, Mississippi? Except for reading the signs. And the Waze app is entirely to blame for the other half of the mistakes on my last trip to Alabama. But let's think about our ancestors' map skills. You have explorers out sailing the world. In their wake are cartographers, noting tiny details about faraway lands. Enter one Franco Rosselli. As you might guess, he was Italian. And he made a very detailed map of the world as they knew it in 1503. His map included some details about Antarctica. Remember when I mentioned it was 1503? Guess when Antarctica was discovered. Go on, guess. If you said 1820, you're right. Okay, that was the first time anyone ever dared sail the ICC that separated explorers from the frozen continent. People believed in Antarctica for much longer than that. The ancient Greek believed land would have to be down there to balance the Earth. Okie dokie. So for a span of 300 years-ish, no one really knew what the coastline of this potential continent looked like. They guessed that this icy realm existed, and they put it on a map. Or Rosselli was prone to otherworldly knowledge. Like, maybe from aliens, because there's so much amazing detail on Rosselli's map. I mean, not like he was an artist or something. I went on to read that a couple different people actually drew maps featuring Antarctica in fairly accurate shapes. Some of them even showed the continent without ice, and in fact, the continent isn't one solid chunk of ice. Best as I can tell from looking at images of these maps, particularly Rosselli's, one from a guy named Orontius Phineas, and good old Google, I wouldn't say they're accurate, but they're surprisingly close. Like, better than I could draw. It's hard for me to say that the Phineas one, where exactly Ross C is on here, but I think maybe it's turned in a different direction than the other maps. Mind you, the Ross C is covered in ice. So how did these cartographers know it was there? The Phineas map, made around 1531, was discovered in 1960 in the Library of Congress and is surprisingly to scale. This was a time when latitude and longitude hadn't been invented yet. A map made by Penn Reese, who is a cartographer for the Ottoman Empire, also 14th century, displays Antarctica. The funny thing about this particular map is that it shows Antarctica attached to South America. I'm sure they knew about continental drift back then, or were at least figuring it out, but that's pretty wild. The Reese map is far less accurate than other maps, but the fact that it's there convinces me that the Greeks were capable of convincing everyone else that Antarctica existed. I found a life science link, which is posted in the credits, that states Westerners weren't the first people to find Antarctica. There's evidence that Polynesians discovered it first. My theory is that somewhere along the way, some Polynesians crossed paths with someone else who crossed paths with someone else, and it got back to the Greeks that such a place existed. I'm not letting aliens claim the credit for this one either. Why didn't the boy pass his Greek mythology test? The subject was his Achilles heel. Another thing worth mentioning is the Ulfbert sword. Well, there's more than one. About 170 of them that we know of. What's special about it? The fact that Ulfbert was quite the sword maker, and if you owned one of his swords, you owned a top-of-the-line medieval killing implement. What's truly unique about these swords, just like Damascus steel weaponry, no one's really sure how they were made. They were sharp enough to slit through bone, split hairs, and shatter lesser blades, but lightweight and flexible enough to murder your enemy without the inconvenience of breaking. They were highly desirable, but of course came with a hefty price tag. 
Whoever Ulfbart was, he always branded his swords. Not that you couldn't get a knockoff that might lead to your untimely demise. Talking about murder is fun and all, but the point... <laughs> swords have points, that's a pun. <clears throat> the point I'm trying to make is that technology to make such a sword, specifically to heat the metal to purify it, shouldn't have existed in the 9th or 10th centuries based on what we know. In fact, one modern sword maker attempted to recreate the Ulfbert blade using methods he knew they used back then. He couldn't do it without cheating and using other old-timey-time techniques. Some of the ingredients for making such pure steel would have had to come from far away, like India. And while the Vikings were known for voyages, did they make it that far? There's no historical evidence to date. Unfortunately, we don't know who Ulfbert was. No one's even sure where exactly these swords were made. They were in production for about 200 years, which is a really long time to hide the secret spices that make up the recipe to forge blades that left a trail of quaking peasants in the wilder's wake. So what have we learned today? That time travelers exist, and they're not very careful with their stuff. Don't be a careless time traveler. If you pack it in, pack it out. And we also learned that it's probably not very important to go back in time to find the recipe for a super keely steel that helped hordes of warriors murder lots of people in the name of conquering and exploring. I mean, we have modern technology for that now. All I can conclusively say is, not aliens. Next time on Read Into Something, we're delving into the rich world of royalty with some tragic incidents. The Romanov dynasty ended with bloodshed, but what happened to the young prisoners found at the Tower of London? We'll search the past and the ruthlessness that it takes to run a country. Remember, if you enjoy reading to something, please leave us a review or a rating. It means a lot to us. Don't forget to check out the Stone County Library Facebook page. Read into something also has Twitter and Instagram. Find us at twitter.com slash sclcpodcast and insta at instagram.com slash sclcpodcast. Plus, our page has every episode. Simply go to podpage.com slash read dash into dash something. Did you know I also do craft tutorials on YouTube? You can find them at bit.ly slash sclcvideos. Until next time, Alice and Winky out. Disclaimer, views, thoughts, opinions, expressions, podcasts, will solely Alice, not necessarily to employ organization to any other group or individual.